Well, greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place or Right Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is the feature episode for December with Matt Coyle. Matt writes a hard-edged PI series that I think you might enjoy hearing about, and uh, we're going to talk to him about that and a few other things. So that's coming right up. Uh, first on the docket, though, is uh, to hear from Lance Wright over at Down and Out Books. Uh, Down and Out Books is the sponsor of A Wrong Place Right Crime, has been since very nearly the beginning of the show. And each month uh, during the feature episode for the month, Lance comes on and gives us an idea of what's coming out in December from Down and Out Books. Let's hear from Lance. Hi, Frank. We're closing out the year with a couple of solid titles this month. Colin Campbell's latest, Forced Perspective, has his two series characters, ex-cops, now security specialist, Jim Grant and Vince McNulty, meeting up in Palm Springs in a sting operation on a movie set of Titanic Productions to capture wanted criminals. The plan goes off without a hitch until they make a move on their real target, a crime lord movie buff who throws a big hitch into their plans. And in a follow-up to one of our most popular anthologies last year, Michael Bracken has edited Volume 2 of Mickey Finn, 21st Century Noir, a crime fiction cocktail that will again knock readers into a literary stupor. 19 of the most respected short story writers and new writers make their mark on the genre with stories in this collection. It's been a great year at Down and Out Books, and we have a full calendar of titles ready for publication next year. Have a great holiday season, Frank, and we'll talk again in January. All right. Thank you, Lance. Some good books to check out there, folks. If you like your crime fiction, dark and gritty, uh, then uh, you will find plenty to enjoy at Down and Out Books because that is their brand. Also gritty is the work of Matt Coyle, who has won numerous awards. We talk about those a bit in the interview, so I won't uh, repeat them here. But suffice it to say that uh, he has a lot of readers who enjoy his work. And if you haven't heard of him yet, I think you're going to like what you hear in this episode. He's a genuinely good guy. Let's meet and talk to Matt Coyle. Well, hey, Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Frank. Appreciate it. Uh, so you are, uh, as most people probably know, the author of the Rick Cahill series, and I definitely want to delve into that on a few different levels. Um, but I usually like to start the show to, uh, with getting to know the person behind the book cover a little bit. Um, and your website is actually uh, a little sparse when it comes to personal information. Is that something you uh, did purposefully or is that just the way it worked out? Oh, uh, a lot of time in prison. So you want to cover that up. So um, <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. Uh, probably because I haven't updated in a while. I mean, I, my life's been pretty uneventful uh, in terms of uh, what I've done for a living and things like that. Um, so I don't have, you know, I wasn't a, uh, police officer. I wasn't an FBI agent. I wasn't a doctor, a lawyer. So I don't remember, honestly, what's in what I put in there. But uh, I loved crime fiction my whole life, way back, starting with Raymond Chandler. My dad gave me The Simple Art of Murder when I was a kid. And um, that is one path I've gone along, but uh, with a lot of bumps and uh, periods of uh, nothingness on my part. But um, no, life hasn't been terribly exciting for those looking in from the outside so maybe i'll have to look at my bio on my website and see if i can spruce it up a little bit 
so you you were really impressed with crime fiction at a very young age. Uh, what was it about crime fiction in particular that drew you in? Because I grew up on sci-fi and fantasy, and that was kind of my mm-hmm. my gig until much later when I was already a police officer. So what came out was crime fiction. But you were crime fiction from the very beginning. What what about that genre really spoke to you? Yeah, although on sci-fi, I did read a lot of Ray Bradbury when I was young. Um, mm-hmm. Great writer. You know, I really, psychologically, I couldn't tell you exactly what it was. Um, I read, long before Chandler, I read Agatha Christie when I was probably, I don't know, how old are you going to read Agatha Christie? 10, 12, 14, maybe? Probably earlier than 12. I just, I guess I like the idea, I think when you're young, you like the idea of a couple things. Kind of uh, black and white, right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And puzzle pieces like Agatha Christie. And I read uh, Conan Doyle as well. I mean, I read all the Holmes stories. And, you know, you had right and wrong kind of easily delineated and uh, following the clues and the puzzle pieces and, and way more often than not getting it wrong. But um, and then, like I mentioned, my dad gave me Raymond Chandler's The Simple Art of Murder. And I started reading that. I was probably 13 or 14. And I saw that all of a sudden things were kind of gray. Things could be gray. There was there was good and bad, but there was also gray. And I think maybe that uh, appealed to my young teen sensibilities. But um, and then, of course, you know, the writing of Chandler and, and Ross McDonald, just so, so good. And um, I don't know, it kind of flipped a switch in me that I am more into. And I think I think and I don't want to do a disservice to Doyle or um, or Christie, but I just think that, you know, I think characters revealed more in, in uh, more in the later crime than more contemporary crime fiction going way back. And so I think character all of a sudden really started to appeal to me. And you get that in Chandler and certainly in McDonald. And so I think that's the, the course I, I wanted to go was more of the the gray in life and characters revealed and, and nothing really reveals character, certainly in fiction, more than having to deal with a murder, which is generally what these stories are about. Because that's kind of a, a, a rock thrown in the lake that, um, you know, reverberates to everybody, including the killer. So, um, you know, I wish I had a really good answer, like psychologically why it appeals to me, but appealed <laughs> to me. But I don't, but it did. And I, I've been hooked ever since. It's honestly, um, generally in fiction, all I read is really crime. Occasionally there'll be a book that'll pop up. But, you know, there's crime is such a wide, and I call it crime. People call it mystery. People call it whatever. But I just think, think everything is crime with so many subgenres, including thrillers. Um, so there's always a diversity of, of what you can read, but that's really what I read. And, and um, I've been hooked for 50 years. Well, I think that's actually a really great answer. That idea of, of some moral ambiguity when you're 14 years old, you're kind of figuring out that there is gray in the world. You know, I, mean, I think when you're younger than that, it's pretty black and white. Yeah, exactly. And I think also, that you know the um the the i mentioned the puzzle pieces like the the plot was the thing with with doyle and christie mostly mm-hmm. um which was great interesting and and still are and, but when they move forward a little bit it's more about who's committing and who's trying to solve the crime and when i started reading crime fiction which i i, I was probably 18 or so when i really started reading it the grittiness factor was something i really enjoyed too you know then you get that and and Ross McDonald, you get that in in some of these these kinds of titles. No knock on cozy. Some people that I I'm very fond of write wonderful cozies. It's yeah. for me as a reader, it's not my jam. Um, right. 
but it's a different breed. It's a different breed of cat <laughs> and yarn. <laughs> right. That's what's great about mystery, whatever is your mystery crime is that it, it, there's a, there's a window for everybody and there's good writers in every subgenre, genre, whatever you like. So 14 years old when it uh, kind of piques your interest, how old were you when uh, Yesterday's Echo was published? I was about 53, I think, 53 or 54. Yeah, it took me, uh, I always, honestly, I mean, I have a degree in English from UC Santa Barbara from like the 1830s, but um, <laughs> I always wanted to be a writer, but I just never did it. And um, so I didn't really start writing seriously or try to really get on that path until I was like 41 or 42. So it took me 10 years to get published and probably five of sending out, rejecting, revising. You know, it took me probably five years to write a book that I felt was worthy. And then, of course, it wasn't. It took me another three years to figure out that I had to write something better, continually revising. But, uh, yeah, it, um, I started late in life being serious about it, but probably hadn't had enough life experiences to have something to emotionally draw from. Um, I think that anybody who's my age, I think you're in the same ballpark. Of course, you've actually had a life of, of um, interest uh, being a cop, but I think I think anybody can take. When you get to be a certain age, you've had you've lost people in your life, mm -hmm. and you've had love and lost love, and I think that you can pull from true life experiences and put them in whatever fiction you're fiction you're writing, even though it's different from the, the circumstances are different. But um, you know, I wish I would have started earlier but I, I really think i wouldn't have had anything to say unless it was maybe five to ten years earlier but i think i'd be a better writer if i would have started writing when i was 30 or something just you know wordsmith wise what were you doing in the meantime i was selling i worked in the restaurant business for 10 years i worked in the golf business for 10 years and then i worked in the sports collectible business for about 16 years well there's some um, definite experiences that could come out of all that the restaurant business alone is kind of a unique uh sort of subculture of our society especially back when i was doing it yeah i learned a lot about drugs you know just observational <laughs> you know observational back then and uh no yeah you meet you certainly meet a lot of people i was a waiter for many years i managed a restaurant but it, even in managing i was you know it was a smaller restaurant so i had other duties like waiting tables so you know, I was in front of the public every night and yeah, you, you meet a lot of different, and then of course the whole, like you said, subculture of people that back then, I don't know what it's like now that worked in restaurants. It was a interesting group. And I also booked the bands we had, we used to have jazz four nights a week and I used to book the oh, bands, sure. jazz bands. And that was another subculture. Yeah, for sure. Kind of a nuanced feeling on time. A lot of jazz musicians back in the day. <laughs> I had Jonathan Brown on the show uh, a while oh, back. Yeah, great. He had some interesting stories about uh, being that being the band that you would have booked in that scenario. Definitely a, a, another subculture. Well, you know, you waited as long as you did, and and whether that was you know something that, that you would have done differently or not, it certainly was worth the wait. I mean. Uh, yesterday's Echo won the Anthony Award, unless I'm misreading that. No, you're right. So how did that feel? I mean, you you you, you write that first book, or at least the first book that's published, and it isn't just accepted or noticed. It wins uh, uh, one of the more prestigious awards, in my opinion. I mean, it's a that's a reader's award. It was pretty interesting and um, sensational. I mean, you do write in anonymity, especially before you publish. I mean, for years and years. I don't know how it was for you, but 
my track is not that dissimilar from many writers. Um, is it you, you, you're taking it's taking forever to get published? Will you get published? You know, is it is it good enough? And um, so it was it was really quite rewarding for sure. Of course, I didn't expect to win, but yeah, it was um, whatever level I may be at now. I think it kind of gave me a boost, uh, maybe just for a little bit more, um, you know, visibility. Mm-hmm. So that was good. I mean, you know, there's a lot of great books that never get nominated for awards and don't win and blah, blah, blah. But just that being nominated and, and actually winning, you know, you, you get mentioned in a few magazines and things. So I think it probably helped get more readers to me, but it was uh, incredibly um, honored to have that happen. It's a good start. You know, the other books in the series, uh, I won't go through all the nominations, but there was a slew of them. And um, if my notes are, are correct, you know, you, you won again uh, with uh, Lost Tomorrows, with The Seamus and the Lefty. Um, yeah. And uh, Blind Vigil, I think, won uh, an award as well. Uh, won The Seamus, yeah. Yeah. And that's the PI. Who does right. The Seamus? I always mix that up. That's the PI. That's a private eye writer. Private right. Writers of America, yeah. Right, and right, to right, me, right. as as we talked about my, you know, my uh, early age reading Chandler, McDonald, mm-hmm. PI novels all my life, it's um, it's pretty cool just to be nominated and, and then actually win. And then you look at the list of the PI writers that have won the awards. It's really like, like you could always have that on my resume is pretty freaking cool. You know, I talk to a lot of writers and, and, and some of those are award winners and you ask people, how does it feel? And, and that's, you gave one of the more honest answers, I think, because you hear a lot of the cliches, just like you do when athletes talk about stuff, you, you know, there's that list of cliches that people trot out every time. And it, it's interesting to me to hear those more honest answers. Like it really did feel good, or I really was disappointed. I didn't win that year or something. When people say yeah. that, I think it's a little more human, a little more honest. I've lost a fair amount of awards and I'm always disappointed. I'm always surprised that I was nominated and honored, but I'm sure when you're, when your name's up there, you hope to win. And you think that generally, you, you know, you wrote a good book and it doesn't mean that whoever wins, you didn't think your book was better than theirs, but you think, mm-hmm. you know, I'm here. want to take home some, some glass or uh, <laughs> some hardware metal, <laughs> yeah, whatever, whatever that particular year happens to be. Well, you know, the mystery community, the crime fiction community is is actually, I think, a, a pretty generous one. It's a pretty good community to be, to be part of. And it's entirely possible for you to be disappointed you didn't win and just as happy for the person who did. It's those two things are not mutually exclusive. Well, maybe for a better person than me. Um, <laughs> I would say I'm happy, but I would have been more happy had I won. But, but I do completely agree with your... Um, opinion of the mystery community it's an amazing community of people of all levels of success who are willing to help another writer you know if you think about it we're all competing for the same limited shelf space but with very few examples i'm sure you've had the same experiences writers are are willing to help give you of their time and time you know the more you write the more you realize how um valuable your time is and how little of it that you have something you never considered something i never considered when i started writing but um i've been really fortunate with people um blurbing me and and things like that and coming on my uh podcast that it is a pretty amazing and um 
I'd heard about it. The woman, Carolyn Wheat, who was a mentor to me, led a writer's group I was in for very for a lot of years and also taught at UC, UC San Diego Extension when I took writing classes from her way back when. She always mentioned about how giving the mystery community was. Now that I'm a full-fledged member, I, I really feel it. And I think you... I think each writer has a responsibility because of the the help they've gotten along the way to try to help as they go on as well. Um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. I miss conferences where we can all get together. I really miss that. Yeah, that's that's my social outlet these days. Me several too. Years, Me really. too. I mean, that and this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, folks, we'll get back to that conversation with Matt Coyle in just a moment. But this is the time on the feature episode of the month that I like to turn things over to the experts. And the experts I mean are authors who have been on the show who have some books to recommend to you. So in addition to the Down and Out slate that Lance talked about earlier in the show, we're going to hear some recommendations from Adam Bregman, Dana Stabenow, Owen Mullen, and Sarah Gailey. Take it away, folks. Uh, this is Adam Bregman, the author of Angelino Heights. And I recently read an incredible book. Uh, it's the stories of um, Paul Bowles. Uh, I believe it's his complete stories. And Paul Bowles is mostly famous, I think, for The Sheltering Sky. And his short stories are incredible. Many of them are set in Morocco, like The Sheltering Sky and some of his other books. Um, but a lot of them are set in Latin America and they're, they're set all over the place. And he wrote, I would say, I'm guessing it was like the 30s to the 80s. He had a long life. And uh, it's an incredible book. It's about 650 or 700 pages. And it's a very worthwhile read. It is called The Stories of Paul Bowles. My name's Dana Stano. I write lots of books. I'm probably best known for the Kitsu Gag series. Um, what I'm reading right now is uh, Road of Bones by Jim Ben, James R. Ben, who writes a fabulous um, series set in World War II featuring Billy Boyle, who is Ike Eisenhower's um, private investigator. One of the best parts of those books are the author's notes at the end when he tells you what's real and what isn't, and most of it is. Road of Bones by James R. Ben. Hi, my name's Owen Mullen. I'm a crime writer from Scotland. The Accused is, I think, is my 10th published book. I live in Scotland. I've recently relocated from uh, Greece. Uh, I read all the time. Often I find myself going back to some of the classic books like uh, Remy Chandler. Uh, I never get tired of reading him. Um, I think he's one of my earlier influences, actually. I think he's one of everybody's earlier influences. For me, him and all the old Edward G. Robinson, uh, 1940s and 50s gangster movies. That's not what I write, but that's the kind of feel that the whole thing's got. So if I was recommending a book, I think I'd probably recommend, I don't know, The Big Sleep, Failing All My Love Life, something like that. Failing those, you can't go wrong with uh, Sherlock Holmes, any of the Sherlock Holmes. Hi, I'm Sarah Gailey, author of Magic for Liars and The Echo Wife, and I am so thrilled 
to recommend a book to you today that is out today as I'm recording this. Squad, written by Maggie Takuda Hall and illustrated by Lisa Stroll, is a absolutely dazzling graphic novel. There's the story of a group of best friends who share one incredible power, and that power is the ability to turn into werewolves and devour terrible boys at parties. It is a book about the power of belonging, the power of social pressure, the allure of violence, and the moment when violence stops seeming like a solution and starts seeming like a problem. Squad is available everywhere books are sold. You can get it from your local library. You can go to your local independent bookstore and pick it up. You can go to your local comic book shop and pick it up. You can get it on the internet. I highly recommend going to bookshop.org if you're in the U.S. to support independent bookstores all across the United States and Canada. Squad by Maggie Takuda Hall and Lisa Stirl. Don't miss it. You'll love it. All right, some great recommendations there. So you've got about half a dozen books or so so far that uh, you can uh, check out if you are in a dearth of uh, good reading material. Uh, I suspect the opposite is true. Most people have a TBR list, whether virtual or actually stacked by the bedside, that uh, probably never going to get through. So uh, take a stab and uh, try some of these folks out. You know, it never hurts to to start something, and unless you're a completionist, uh, I got to tell you, I I. I'm more willing to set things aside if they don't grab me than I was when I was younger. Uh, probably has something to do with the uh, marching steps of the uh, eternal footman, so to speak. Uh, nonetheless, um, let's get back to our interview with Matt Coyle. Uh, well, you know, we've been talking a bit now. And we haven't really gotten into who Rick Cahill is in eight books, and that's a lot of ground. But uh, the first one, Yesterday's Echo, won the Anthony Award. And it introduces Rick Cahill to the mystery world. And so if there are people out there who haven't heard of Matt Coyle or they haven't read any Rick Cahill, how would you describe this character? Well, starting from there, from, from yesterday's Echo, he was a former cop in Santa Barbara. He's uh, only served about two and a half years. He was arrested for his wife's murder and... Um, Never tried, but never exonerated. He was released. There wasn't enough evidence. He thought for many years to be a guy who got away with murder. So he and he was basically kicked off the force and went to San Diego to, to basically the only guy would give him a job, a guy named Turk Muldoon, who he worked in his dad's restaurant, Turk's dad's restaurant as a kid, and he gave him a job as managing the restaurant. And, um, and then in yesterday's Echo, he meets a woman and from that experience decides, well, I really want to kind of get back into trying to help people and the way for him to do that is become a private investigator. He's kind of a, he's a dark, he's a dark character. He has lived by his late father's code, who was also thought to be a bad cop, which is sometimes you have to do what's right, even when the law says it's wrong. And he's embraced that. And he has committed many crimes or at least a handful of crimes over the, the years he's been a private investigator, but he's led by that, that credo, that way of living and but he starts as as uh as he gets older and the books go along he starts to question his if i'm just doing what i'm what i think's right no matter how just i may think i am how different am i from from people who've done evil things with when they've truly thought they're doing the right thing and, and have i done have i done evil things in the in the in the word of good in my own word of good so that's something he battles with as the books progress and the one thing I want to start start writing the book, I didn't know anything about writing. I just knew about reading. And 
one thing I wanted to, to, to live by was that everything, every bad decision Rick has made throughout his life, big bad decisions, and every um, physical encounter he's had and emotional encounter he has, are, are, there's going to be reverberations. They're going to leave scars. And so he carries baggage from over his entire life. And um, that is certainly the case as we get to this book. He's accumulated all these scars emotionally, of course, have a lot of damage and they, they've influenced the decisions he makes. But as we get to this book, the physical toll of, of um, a lifetime of violence, uh, you can call it physical, physicality. He was a Golden Gloves boxer as a kid. He played Pop Warner football. He played high school football. He played college football for a couple of years. So he's undergone a lot of physical trauma and it's left scars and very severe scars as we enter um, Last Redemption. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. That's a, a lot of interesting angles. Yeah, spewed uh, a lot. Angles. Spewed it out. <laughs> no, there's a lot there. Um, you know, the, the idea, one of the things I, I wanted to touch on is this idea of, you know, a guy who was a cop who is now a persona non grata with his former yeah. agency and by extension probably – most of the profession. Um, yeah. and, and it's ambiguous for a while that whether he was guilty or not. And so that's an interesting relationship for a PI to have. You see in a lot of PIs where maybe the PI does some questionable things in the pursuit of the right thing, but they might have, you know, a good relationship with some members on the police department, somebody they can reach out to for information or, yeah. or, or whatever. That's not the case for, for Rick. No, he really, in terms of the police departments, he has, he has none and he's gone back to his home of, in San Diego, but he, when he, he worked in La Jolla, um, in the restaurant and I fictionalized La Jolla police department there, there isn't one, there never has been one, but I wanted to have a small insular force where there's not, um, community oversight or civilian oversight. So there could maybe be some bad apples, um, but also bad apples thinking they're doing the right things, but, um, so because of that, this is going to be a transgression, but it kind of goes to an important part of the whole series is that I told you one of my goals was everything that matter. You know, when Rick makes decisions, it matters. The other thing was I was going to make, <clears throat> excuse me, completely a lone wolf, stuck with his own decisions, having to get on by his own wits and, and climb out of the own, the troubles, the holes he digs for himself. And I introduced a character named Moira, Moira McFarland, who's also a PI in uh, the second book, Night Tremors. And they, and I, once I started writing her, I really liked her and I brought her back for other books. So she, and she is a normal PI and PI fiction where she does have a relationship with the police. So Rick uses her for when he needs information, uh, you know, a license plate run or something if possible. He goes to her, but that whole relationship is built. So I had two steadfast rules. I ended up breaking one. And that was probably the best decision I ever made in the series because from that came a character I can never imagine and one who I think my readers really like and, and probably my favorite character aside from Rick to write is Moira. Yeah, and as, as appealing as a lone wolf character is and, and people really dig the idea in in application, it, it starts to be limited and not just in a storytelling mode, but in an emotional mode. I mean, yeah. Uh, and so I think that was it was a good choice for sure. That relationship with the police, I mean, the nature of investigating, sometimes there's a bail, you know, uh, or, or better put, there's a wall, you know, between 
certain information and, and, you know, people who want it. I mean, you can't run a license plate as a, like you mentioned, as a civilian. And so inevitably, I think we run into that need for some kind of a, a connection to the, to the police. Uh, but that's tough for a guy right. that's, you know, that's uh, suspected of murder. I, I, you're, you're exactly right with the tension on the page. If it comes from relationships, it does make, it does feel like a faster, like a fast read, even if it's, even if there's only one murder or only maybe, mm-hmm. uh, you know, three physical um, encounters in the whole book, just the tension between characters can um, expedite the story and make it feel like it's running faster than it really is. The other piece of that you mentioned earlier that I think is is fascinating is that, you know, the, this character arc over the course of eight books, you know, you often see characters have changed over that period of time. That's That's not uncommon. But showing the mileage isn't quite as common. You don't see it as often. I mean, Block did it with with the Matt Scudder books, showing mm-hmm. the, the age and the mileage, uh, you know, pretty pretty well. And I always liked that. And so now you have a character here in book number eight who's really feeling it. And, and you get into something that's fairly topical right now with, with the brain injury, you know, the effects right. of CTE. Um, yeah. And, and how, how deeply do you delve into that uh, in this book? I don't delve, you know, I don't go into a doctor's sense of it too much, although Rick has been diagnosed. I think anybody has followed it a little bit knows that at this point, the ultimate diagnosis is after death, um, when that's the only time when they cut your brain open, they can actually see um, that indeed you did have it. But I think that they're learning more and more and they can make very good, um, educated guesses. Yeah, I thought I just... You know, CTE is, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily fatal, but it's, um, you don't get better, you get worse. And dementia, it it can be a part of it, Um, I think, or or increased dementia, perhaps, or escalated dementia. And um, I mean, you know, football players don't don't live that long, to be honest. Um, Mm -hmm. And all, all the ones they've ever had done autopsies on and looked for in recent years that I know of, have had it no matter what position they've had CTE. And I just thought, and not just for CTE, you know, Rick, he, I call it a violent, he's led a life of violence, but it really has been physical sports and, you know, uh, boxing, how many, you know, he boxed for three years, golden gloves. You're absorbing a lot of punishment to your head, mm-hmm. football concussion, not necessarily just con- concussions, but collisions. You know, he played probably seven years or eight, nine years of football. So I just thought, if I'm being true to this whole thing where everything matters and I, I thought, well, they'll be true to what I'm doing and to be true to his life, I have to give him this disease or at least be diagnosed with it. And, but then I think, well, you know, I like this guy. I want to write him for years to come. And I just put him on a really bad um, downhill path. <laughs> so probably not the brightest thing to do, but for me, it was the thing that I had to do to be true to the character. And as this book opens, he's probably never been in a better position in terms of uh his life and you know he's with a, he's in a committed relationship with a woman he loves who happens to be pregnant a child he never thought he'd have oh but there's this other thing where he's got cte so that's kind of rick's life so i had to deal with that challenge but yeah and i'm as i've written the next book which i'm just turning in today as a matter of fact you know this doesn't go away so i'm having to deal with other ramifications mm-hmm. of that so um, I don't remember what your original question was, but and was I dumb to do this? I'll say, was I dumb? Probably, but I felt it was the way to go. 
Well, it's very true to life. I mean, I, I haven't really read a lot about it in the NFL or the boxing world. I'm more of a hockey fan, but it's it's shown up there well, too, particularly yeah. among those guys who were enforcers who you know who, who had a lot of fights in their career. And, Absolutely. Uh, not only with the uh, increased dementia, but it seems to have had an impact on them in terms of making them. Uh, more susceptible to addiction, yeah. to narcotics or, or alcohol, and and a lot of depression and suicidal tendencies coming out of yeah. it as well. So it's it's some bad stuff. But you know, for a guy that did what what you've got him doing, and then I'm assuming a fair amount of you know uh, physicality on the job, uh, yeah, or over the years that adds up, and and this is a pretty realistic place for him to end up. Um, I hope he's on the slow train though, because otherwise. <laughs> He's on the train. I'll say that. I always, <laughs> I always think of, uh, when I think about Rick and, and I think about, you know, when you write a book, you can write, you can spend uh, weeks on a, on, a, on a scene or a chapter sometimes when it's not going great. And so you may have, you know, Rick may have had an injury, hurt his knee or something, or uh, had a black eye. And then you're writing two days later, but it's actually been a month since you wrote the injury try to keep track of those things. And I always think of, um, Chinatown with, uh, Jake mm-hmm. Gittis, Gittis, mm-hmm. or Mr. Gittis says, uh, mm-hmm. what's his face called him? I think of him with the big, uh, you know, he got, uh, the nose cut Roman Polanski slipped his, uh, ripped his nose. And then he's got, he's either got the bandage on the whole time or when it comes off and you see this nasty scar with stitches, mm-hmm. I'm thinking that is, that is sort of, I want, that's what I wanted to portray is that. And, and, and internally as well as that, these things matter. They have consequences and they don't just go away in the next scene or the next episode. Yeah. I have never enjoyed those books or TV shows or movies for that matter, where the hero gets, you know, his ass kicked or gets shot in the arm or, or whatever. And then, you know, the next scene, everything's fine. And, you know, it's just a scratch. I mean, there's a disconnect there that they, they lose me. Yeah, I tend to, I, I, I agree. Although, uh, you know, I'm always glad that uh, my favorites stay alive. Yeah, no doubt. But I mean, you know, look at Indiana Jones at the end of, end of any of those movies. He's he's still alive and kicking, but, you know, they're, the, the mileage shows. Well, the mileage shows, uh, yeah, because he's old anyway. Uh, poor guy. <laughs> he's, yep. getting, he's getting up there. <laughs> they're making another one, I heard, too. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Hopefully there are no aliens. Yeah, <laughs> or zombies. <laughs> uh, any chance uh, Rick Cahill gets to the smaller, large screen? Is that uh, in the works, possibly? Not yet. No, uh, no options at this point. Um, I know there. I have a, a Hollywood agent who, or two actually, they're a team that really believe in it and are pumping it, and have had some near misses and such. But um, not yet. But they're um, they're feverishly working, and uh, I hope because I think that. You know, there's so many uh, options for um, for for shows now, and you know, it's on demand and everything else. That I think there's an audience for it. It's kind of a you know, it's thought to be probably a little bit out of um, I don't know, out of uh, what's trendy. Certainly, what's out of trendy, but yeah, I think there's an audience for hard-boiled PI, especially this guy's a little different. Um, you know, he's not. He doesn't just throw off uh, you know non sequiturs and, and stuff all the time. Um, he thinks he hurts, so I think there's. I do think there's a market for it, but it, it hasn't happened yet. If you had your choice, would you want a feature movie or a short run series on a streaming service? 
series. I think you could actually make some money on a series if you can somehow get attached to the, <laughs> I don't think a movie, you have much chance of making money, but, and I, and I, you know, but, but the other thing is, uh, you know, I, I have friends and, and other, I know writers and great um, followers, followings that, you know, when you sell it, you sell it, that you don't own it anymore. So that, you know, yeah. you live yeah. with, you live with that. I can think of a, re, a, a, a author who's, um, I don't know that well, but we're certainly friendly and he's um, really, he's got a big career and still going, who's had a recent series. And I just think they, it was uh, a network, and I, I just think they network. You don't want to go to network. <laughs> so that's, right? it's, you know, all the good stuff has come from, I mean, think back to HBO, um, Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And even um, FX when they did um, mm-hmm. The Justified. Shield, you know, that was like yeah. completely justified. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shield was great. Yeah. I mean, you can never do that on network. Well, and as you're talking about Rick Cahill, those are the two shows uh, that that came to mind in terms of you know being in that same ballpark. Anyway, that that uh, not quite antihero, gritty sort of approach. Uh, and the thing about a even a short, even if all you got was eight episodes, one season, that's it. The amount of story and character and the atmosphere that you can explore over you know eight. 50 minute episodes versus one two, you know hour and a half long movie is i mean i think for me it's vastly superior i i used to watch maybe 80 percent movies 20 percent tv when it came to viewing you know percentages and it's yeah. it's easily flipped the other way now it might even be yeah 90 10 to, to series television totally agree because i think i think that i think we're kind of at we're we've slipped out of it but i really think the last 20 years were the second golden age of television. And it was because of not being on network. It was because of the mm-hmm. cable and the, and the pay and the, and the streaming where they just mm-hmm. take more chances and uh, there's greater variety. And I absolutely, absolutely agree. The better storytelling is unquestionably being told on television. It's because they've, they've started to, as, as opposed to episodic, they're doing serials, you know, they're doing, mm-hmm. look at Deadwood, which is to me, one of the greatest TV shows ever made and only lasted three seasons. Is that, you know, what happened to, um, um, say Al Swearingen, you know, in the first season, it, it, it has reverberations in the season three. I mean, um, mm-hmm. and of course, all the great shows do that now, mm-hmm. as opposed to you, know, you solve the case, you move forward, and solve the next case next week. I really, I, I get, I get inspiration from a, from a lot of the stuff I see on the the wide variety of streaming and TV. Yeah, you know, Deadwood is one is one classic I have not watched yet. It's always like right there, and no. I have to start watching it. Um, Could not recommend it more. Could not recommend it more. And it's just uh, it's you start rooting for some some characters in the beginning, and then you'll and you'll just you'll like just you think you think you would never root for somebody, and all of a sudden this is your favorite character. All I can say is Ian McShane should have won an Emmy every year. <laughs> and the showrunner on that is uh, David Milch. David yeah, Milch. David Milch. Who I was a huge NYPD yeah. Blue fan. Yeah, and that was one of the first shows that was able to be both episodic and serial at the same time in a way yeah, you're that right. you don't see very often, and and that's part of why I liked it. Uh, so, uh, we, you know, we started talking about uh, Rick Cahill, uh, the new one, Last Redemption, which sounds like the end of a series, possibly, but you've you've already shared that number nine is coming out there. And uh, do, you, do you have a, a title on that yet, or is that still up in the air? I do. Uh, it's called Doom Legacy. Well, <laughs> this is a dark series. I love these Very, titles, very upbeat. Very, <laughs> very light. Very light. <laughs> And so that's headed to the publisher. So we're probably looking like 
eight to 12 months out on that? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's going to be either, either, uh, late October, or early November next year of 2022. But, uh, yeah. uh, last redemption came out on, uh, in the middle of November. Uh, so right. as, as this well, actually uh, the end of November, end of November, uh, a couple yeah. of weeks ago as, as, as we're dropping this episode. So folks pick that up. The author is Matt Coyle. The Rick Cahill series, The Last Redemption, is number eight in the series. You definitely want to start at the beginning, but read fast. And uh, if if you dig gritty stuff, this is the place to be. And I don't think you'd be listening to this show if you didn't like gritty infection. So, Matt, I want to tell you, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. I really, I really enjoyed it. All right, folks, there you go. Matt Coyle had a fun time talking to him. Um, I should apologize. This episode is dropping several days later than it usually does. Uh, just had some personal issues here at uh, the wrong place or right crime headquarters. Uh, mainly, I was feeling under the weather and we had a, a little bit of home improvement issues that uh, couldn't just sit for days on end uh, that uh, were not fun to work on while sick. So, uh, But I'm better now, uh, even if I don't sound like it. And uh, wanted to get this episode out uh, as, as quick as I could. I uh, appreciate Matt understanding. And uh, it was going to drop on his birthday. So happy belated birthday, Matt. And I trust that you, the listener, didn't enjoy it any less, even though it was a few days late. On the next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime, uh, I got a chance to interview Michael Pencavage, and so he and I are going to talk about his work. Uh, that is next week, on time, <laughs> on Wrong Place, Right Crime. Frank Zafiro update for you. Nothing new to add at the moment. Uh, just a reminder that uh, Dirty Little Town, book seven of the River City series, is currently available. For those of you who are Kindle Unlimited readers, uh, that will go into Kindle Unlimited in mid-January. Uh, it is currently available on all platforms. So if you are a non-Kindle reader, I would suggest grabbing it in the next week or so because it's going to go Kindle exclusive very shortly. That's Dirty Little Town, book seven of the River City series. All right. I want to say thank you to Matt for not only coming on the show, but uh, being cool about the late drop date. Down and Out Books for sponsoring the show and especially Lance for coming on and, and sharing these new releases. Uh, and speaking of sharing book recommendations, thanks to Sarah Gailey, Owen Mullen, Dana Stabenow, and Adam Bregman. Out of all those recommendations, I got to think you'll get at least one hit out of them, right? And probably more. Uh, last but not least, of course, I always like to say thank you to you, the listener, for being here, for checking out these authors, for giving their work a chance uh, and seeing if it's for you and uh, for supporting Wrong Place or Right Crime. Anything you can do to that end is appreciated. Likes, shares, social media mentions, anything that uh, you feel up to doing, I certainly do appreciate. Helps grow the show and the purpose of the show is to promote those authors who come on it. So check out Matt Coyle's books. I'll be back next episode with Michael Pencavage. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.